Welcome to Learte dell'Arme, the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. Today's guest is Ark Mendelovitz. Ark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So I kind of gave a little bit of your background, but tell me um, a little bit more about your martial arts background and how you got started, uh, especially in the Bolognese system. Sure. Uh, so I've been doing martial arts of some variety and others since I was like eight years old. Uh, started off in Shotokan Karate, did that as a kid, uh, stumbled into the local SCA practice, like freshman year of high school. Uh, I lucked out. The Chicago practice is like one of the deepest pools out there. Um, so it's, let's say, a plurality at this point, Italian rapier. Uh, but we also have folks studying much other things. We also have a good amount of Spanish fencers, even more so these days, as well as a few Germans. So you get to cross-pollinate every week. Uh, and then the past, I want to say four years, I've been doing more and more Bolognese work as I've kind of gotten you know, out of my shell of purely just doing Gigante day in, day out. <laughs> yeah. So Gigante is pretty simple, right? I mean, in terms of the rapier masters, he's, he's very straightforward. His, his uh, overall advice is very um, like the point, um, literally. <laughs> yeah. uh, I really right? appreciate his clarity. I like the fact that he wrote us a curriculum that goes in a straight line. I want to piece together yeah. myself. Uh, I did a discussion class uh, a little bit ago. We read all of both of Trigante's books, and then we looked at Capoferro, and it kept being like, ah, oh, I don't know why he put that in this order. Uh, whereas, <laughs> like, I was only talking to someone yesterday, like, Trigante plates one through seven, 90% of all rapier. Do it in that order, and you're set. Yeah. Well, so you're not going to start reading Marazzo anytime soon, right? <laughs> one of my friends, uh, his advice for anyone trying to do Bolognese is don't start with Marazzo. Pick anyone else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I've actually been doing a read-through of Dal Gokier lately. Uh, just trying to, I tried doing a straight read-through of the Anonimo and then had to take a break just because I felt overwhelmed. Oh, see, I was I was excited to actually ask you about that because I saw you had uh, posted on your blog, um, Full of Swords, um, that uh, you were doing, you know, like you were, that was your challenge for the year was just kind of like really diving into the Anonimo. And I'm um, sure I'm going to circle back to it, uh, but it's still January. You know, I got yeah. some time. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, I was, it, it, it's good stuff. I like uh i i believe honestly um and you know the anonymous general fencing advice is probably the best piece of the best work that we have um in terms of really understanding the bolognese system um and i thought you did a good write-up of that um yeah. yeah i think it's really comprehensive uh it digs into the weeds, sort of, I like the later chapters more. I've jumped around in most of the books a lot. Um, I just haven't done a straight read through of all of them. Uh, but yeah. I think especially, so like I just put out a video, I need to go re-edit after some feedback of the sword and two hand section of the Anonymo. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like that one. And then the armored Polak section's hilarious. She like stab them in the foot, 
go right up the middle there. Oh yeah, like it's uh it's so much fun. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's once that- he establishes that groundwork of sword in one hand, uh, he you know gets to play a little more. I also appreciate both him and Dalgoki uh, start us with the sword in one hand and then kind of move from there. Uh, it's generally the way I found works best pedagogically. I see a lot of folks uh, will pick up a secondary and then just use it as a crutch. And mm-hmm. they'll be okay if they have things in both hands, but the moment you make them put it down, they have no idea how to keep themselves alive. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think that's general advice that you... Well, I mean, it's it's funny because that runs contrary to the earlier Bolognese masters, right? Like when you think about Mancilino and Morazzo, like their core framework is basically teaching sword and buckler and then like, you know, I guess taking the safety blanket away from everybody. (laughs) But, you know, when it comes to the Anonimo, you're right. It is kind of teaching the sword first. Uh, Palladini, a lot of the later authors um, end up teaching sword first. Uh, Palladini's advice is really interesting because he tells you to teach sword first teach them left-handed and then teach them two swords that's fine yeah uh i know like i end up playing a lot ambidextrously uh part of that is the sca's rule set where we can take one limb at a time uh but then also i just deal with a lot of lefties both as like the suited of a lefty as well as the teacher of a few lefties. So especially if I'm trying to teach a class to someone who's left-handed, I'll just switch to make their life easier. Uh, So it's good to hear that, I haven't read Paldini, but it's good to hear that like more of like the texts back then were addressing that issue. As opposed to like the Spanish just pretended it didn't exist. Yeah, I think my connection cut out there, but I was actually, so to follow that up, he actually tells them to then learn two swords. So you teach them right, right-handed and then left-handed and then two swords, which is really cool. Yeah, um, all the best two-star fighters I know essentially injured their right arm, uh, fought lefty for a few months, and then <laughs> we're like, oh, okay, I have two functional arms now. And that's kind of like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, um, so <laughs> that's interesting. So you, you decided to kind of give up on, on the Anonimo. Um, you know, I think uh, the Anonimo... I didn't give up on it. I put it. Down for, <laughs> I'll be back in like a couple months. All right, all right. Well, we'll we'll see. We're gonna hold you to that because I'm I'm interested to see, you know, your ideas. I love seeing, you know, different ideas of, um, you know, just people putting their ideas out there. Uh, it it's good to get lots of different perspectives, especially from people coming from different backgrounds. You know, like. Um, since you're kind of looking at the Bolognese system from a top-down perspective, given that rapier was your primary focus um, initially, um, I like to see that sort of cross, right? Because there there are some people who are coming at this from sort of the bottom up, and they're looking at this from, okay, well, you know, my perspective is uh, Italian fencing from you know, Fiore to Vadi and then progressing into the Bolognese system. So they're, they're sort of understanding comes from a two-handed sword perspective, whereas you're coming more from single-handed sword with a complex hilt and like kind of looking down. Um, and I think 
the more that we kind of band these ideas together, uh, the better understanding that we'll have of everything, um, which I think is really great. Um, one of the things I want to say about the Anonymo, though, um, is he does have something that resembles a sort of a set curriculum. Uh, speaking of curriculums like Giganti or uh, Dalagoke, um, but it's it's weird. It's in a weird place. It's in a really weird place. It's all the way back in like the 400 plays of the single sword plays. It's at the very end. Uh, basically, he, he, he breaks it down. Yeah, but it might be a good place to start um, to look at because he basically breaks it down into it gives you like this continuation of just different guards right so it's Kotalunga Strata and he gives you like 10 plays from Kotalunga Strata to work through and then he goes into Porta de Ferro Strata and gives you 10 plays from Porta de Ferro Strata and then does the same with uh Gordier de Alicorno and things like that um and it, it's really interesting that he does that and it and that it appears so late in his text I mean given that it's not um like a an actual uh, manuscript that was presented to somebody. Um, you know, it could just be that that's when he maybe decided to actually start formulating <laughs> some sort of a fencing system. You know, everything else is just him jotting notes on all of his plays. Part of it's also just the evolution of technical writing. Uh, so a few of my fencing friends are technical writers by trade. So it's interesting seeing how they filter through like these manuals. Cause it's like, it's very clear that like the Inano is a handwritten thing. Like Moretzo didn't have an editor. Uh, no. I really want like a time machine and just to shove editors back into the 1530s. Bologna. Uh, I think we all would have benefited from it. Uh, but I think <laughs> that like you see at the later rapier treatises, they do a lot of just upfront theory work. Like Fabris just goes on for a while of like on the nature of the cut is how he opens this book. Uh, and then eventually you get to a guard. Uh, Gigante has like four pages of theory and then just goes into it. Uh, but even like Capifero has like a good long walk. He's like this weird intro bit, but then he like gets to the more practical ideas of like he has different kinds of tempi and stuff like that. And they they clearly like lay the groundwork and then they show a line and then they go to the next bit. Uh, whereas the Bolognese tend to like show you the guards pretty early on. They're fairly consistent with that one. And then the rest of the theory, like Dalagoki has is like, what, four or five instances of Tempe, just like in the middle. Like, you know, yeah. ah, okay, you're advanced enough. You figured out how to move. Now I'll explain how tempo works, as opposed to like, this yep. is how tempo works. Now you shall move. Yeah, no, that is, it's super interesting the way that he lays it out. Um, you know, you mentioned technical writers, and the first thought that came into my head is how much alcohol do you think we'd have to give them and and pay them in order to get them to rewrite Marazzo and something that's a logical progression? Oh, God. Uh, oof. <laughs> I don't have that kind of budget. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, sorry, that was, that was just an aside. It was <laughs> a thought that popped into my head. Um, but to your point... Um, yeah, it, it is really interesting the way that Dalagoke kind of puts the tempos in there. You know, talking, not just ragging on Marazzo, but kind of bringing Marazzo up again. You know, he gives his general fencing advice in the most obscure places. And sometimes you come across something and you're like, oh, wow, 
that makes a lot of sense. And it's like, oh, I wish I would have had that at the very beginning. Thanks, Maranzo. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Where, you know, Minchilino, uh, he gives, kind of like the Anonimo, gives a great sort of rundown of all of his general ideas for how he wants you to progress through the fight at the beginning of his book. But when you really kind of delve into his text, uh, if you don't have those fresh in mind, there's always the chance that you're going to miss what he's really going for tactically um, because it is all predicated on that advice that he gives at the beginning of the book. You know, some people will just kind of turn to like the single sword section and they're like, I just want to fight sword alone. So I'm going to look at Mar or Manchilino's sword alone and they're like, okay, I'm going to gather at this guy and he's either going to stab me or he's going to do nothing, right? <laughs> and it's like, this sort of like crazy mindless progression and they don't quite get what the the strategic implementation of that is um, in the strindry of space that he's really going for um, which is a really interesting concept um, yeah i definitely think there's a big risk of cherry picking in the manuals uh you mm -hmm. see this a lot earlier in like the hema world when we had a lot of pictures before we had translations you're like ah, oh, okay i'll just try and look like this picture i don't know why the picture is making this shape uh but even now yeah. like sometimes i fall into this trap of like well uh i'll pick up the anonymous ricardino and just try and read the long sword chapter and that that did not go great i need to go back <laughs> figure out what these cards were uh but people will try and like yeah. skip to the end uh we know so if we have the records for instance for how much uh darty i realize like you know we all have strong opinions on darty in the bolognese school but we have, follow me on this one, we have the records of him for how much he charged the city of Bologna for his classes. Uh, and it's very clear that like the sword in two hands classes cost twice as much as a sword in one hand class. Uh, so it's, you know, this is an advanced tool. There is clearly some progression going on. Uh, you know, it's like, I'm sure part of it's marketing, right? Something like, Manchelino's like, ah, okay, everyone is doing sword and buckle. That's the book I shall write. Whereas if you're running like a modern FEMA school, if you're talking to one of my friends earlier, uh, they're more of a rapierist themselves, but like their school has twice as many longsword fencers because, you know, that's what's what grabs people's attention due to Hollywood and everything. Um, but if you just jump to the longsword chapter in the text, Right. If you look at like the Getty manuscript in Fiori, for instance, right, he wants to learn how to wrestle first. Uh, the Germans mm -hmm. do a similar thing. And if you just try and go, oh, okay, I'm going to go over here to this part that lines up with my interests and don't get that solid foundation down in theory, uh, you're going to be missing a lot, which is, in the end, just going to end up with you getting hit in the face a bunch and really confused. Yeah. Yeah, no. <clears throat> that's a you know that's a really great point um and i think it's it's definitely something unfortunately that you know you see a little bit and uh you kind of wish people would kind of go back and and try to understand those those tactical frameworks it is nice when you know i think the author basically lays out their tactical framework so that way you understand exactly what it is that you're getting into <laughs> of course you know with later writers and and you can speak to this that you know with the rapier treatises in general i mean for the most part you have a better understanding of publication and 
kind of flushing out like your ideas, you know, I mean, uh, printing had been around for a while and it wasn't just like you hand this jumbled manuscript like Ronso that needs an editor to some publisher and then they're, they're like, okay, I'll print this. I don't know what it means, but I'll print it, you know? And then um, yeah, Manchilino, I guess, kind of represents a, a better aspect of that. You know, he's interesting because he's writing for the Spanish court um, or at least a, a bunch of Spaniards that are in, uh, in Naples. Um, so, you know, where he's at, it's kind of a, a different influence. And maybe that's why he left the two-handed sword out um, and just kind of mentions yeah. it in passing. Yeah, he has one paragraph on it. But it's a really good paragraph. Uh, it is, yeah. It's essentially just, hey, those high guards, use them for spotted de joker. Use them for, like, the start of play. Spotted de filo, like, sharp swords, don't. Yeah. Uh, and especially right as someone who came to this from rapier where the strata guards make a lot of sense and alicorno and like the earlier entrare are more foreign to me I'm like oh okay cool uh, we encode along the strata and porta de ferra strata and chinghade porta de ferra strata and from there i'll murder people done great makes sense thank you <laughs> i feel validated <laughs> yeah yeah, well, I mean, now that you're you're digging into Dalagoke, I think you'll find uh, basically he's he's that nice transition where you still kind of get all the narrow play things, but you're kind of working wide play a little bit of wide play actions into what is basically a narrow framework from Dalagoke, yeah. since you know his only high guard is is Gordy de Alicorno, um, so it kind of <laughs> makes it a uh, little bit easier. Yeah, um, although I do really like just rolling in, especially if the other person, I uh, fight a lot of Furious when I'm doing Longsword, for instance. Uh, so I'll just roll mm -hmm. in and bring out Guardia Alta, and they just stare at me, confused. <laughs> They're like, what, what is he doing from there? Is that going to come out of my head? What, what's happening? <laughs> and then I just see them and panic and hit them. Yeah, it, well, you know, <laughs> I guess especially if they're just kind of wanting to assume nothing but low guards, that's pretty intimidating to be in a, in a low guard and then have somebody yeah. come up at you with a sword above their head. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just having that feeling of, of knowing that you've just have somebody absolutely confused is definitely something that you're going for. Oh, yeah. And like, right, I don't want them making some unpredictable reaction. I want them to freeze. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, I mean, that's people, uh, people talk like there's the sorry, people talk about like the flight or fight response. Um, mm -hmm. The third option that doesn't often get mentioned is the freeze response, mm -hmm. uh, which like makes sense biologically. I just read one of Rory Miller's books. He talks about this, right? Like, oh, like there's a bear staring you down. You should sort of stand still, and maybe it won't do something. Uh, but that option doesn't always serve us well when we're dealing with people. So if I can just get you to panic freeze, my life's great. I just get to go forward. You can do whatever I want. Yeah. And that kind of goes back a little bit to your blog post about the Anonymo. You know, you were talking about how, you know, basically he wants you to win the fight from the very beginning. And another kind of aspect of that, of the socio-psychological um, sort of approach to fighting uh, is posturing and, and making yourself look as big and as intimidating as possible. Um, 
Yeah. And uh, you highlighted that really well uh, in your blog post. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, there's definitely, uh, and you'll see some of that in like modern tournament culture. Uh, you know, I found, at least in the SCA, I'm sure it happens the same in other groups, where you'll have like people will be almost unapproachable for newer folks uh, at an event where like, oh, okay, I just saw that guy murder 30 people in a row. I can't talk to him. And like, you know, you go and hang out with them and they're just some person. Like, it's fine. You can go grab a beer with them. They're chill. Uh, but like, you know, with their masks on, especially, you know, fencing helmet and everything, like it seems like they just have this murder face and no emotion and they're going to terminate you. And, you know, it's of benefit. Uh, if you can like roll in and just like glare at people, you know, I'm sure I like have a good time and like hang out with folks at events. Uh, but sometimes it does feel nice to roll in and hear people go like, oh no, I'm going to get second. Uh, <laughs> you're like, oh, that's real sweet of you. Now I have to go prove it. And then you just like bring out your best game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that, that definitely... Uh... It happens a little bit in, in HEMA tournament culture. I think that most people are, are relatively approachable. Um, but, you know, there is definitely a, you know, you see certain people that move well. You know, you're always kind of watching your opponent to see how they move, especially when people are warming up. You can kind of get a feel for how somebody is preparing whether or not they're going to be a challenge, you know, like when you've been in the tournaments for a while, you recognize people and you're like, ah, yeah, I know that guy's a good fencer. I know this guy's a good fencer. This, this lady's a good fencer, so on and so forth. Um, uh, but with, uh, you know, if, if you're somewhere different where you're with a different group of people or it's your first experience in a tournament or first experience in competition, a lot of times, you know, the best thing that you can do is just watch people's movement. Yeah, and I think the trap people will often fall into unconsciously is they'll judge people based off of their gear, uh, right? Like in the SCA where we're all dressed in garb, right? You know, it does have some meaning. You know, if you've been around for a while, you're probably going to be dressed nicer than someone who's just starting out, uh, right? Like see also, right? in the HEMA world, you're going to get like, oh, okay, that person is rolling in uh, with a, and like, I'm not trying to disparage the brand at all, uh, but like a, an account, like a Castile economy sword. Uh, I think Castile does great stuff. Like I have like my favorite long sword I have is like of this, uh, but like, oh, okay. That person has like an economy weapon and their jacket doesn't really fit them. Uh, I don't know. The, and then you get just hit right in the face. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it happens. And and that's the way you can kind of disguise it too, right? Like if you're an experienced fencer, go in there, just have the, you know, the look, like the, yeah, just scrappiest gear you can possibly imagine. <laughs> and then just go oh, back. Yeah. I roll in to HEMA stuff wearing like a beat up modern white fencing jacket, like whatever pants I found. Uh, I have like leather elbows I put together myself. Uh mm-hmm. But, you know, they've been through, like, a few things. Uh, yeah, all my stuff definitely has some wear and tear. My gloves could probably get replaced. I feel like, oh, okay. Well, he, like, either he's been at this forever or he, like, needs a new dry cleaner. Like, okay, whatever. No, just go <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. So 
as as a professional circus performer and a juggler and a and a fire performer sure. um which i think is is incredibly fascinating and interesting um one of the things that i've always been really curious to explore but i haven't really had time because it would take learning a new skill is really kind of thinking about like reading through let's take the anonymo for example if i was to read through the anonymo and i had sleight of hand in mind right just the, the the general idea of the progression of magic in terms of like how a magic trick works do you think that that has any sort of influence play or uh you know uh, is it is it a, a viable thing to kind of explore when it comes to sword fighting? So I have two answers to this. The first, I'm not a magician. Okay. Uh, there's actually like a oddly large schism between magic and jugglers, and specifically, but circus more largely. I work with a lot of magicians, uh, but the point of magic is to deceive, whereas the uh -huh. point of circus more broadly is you're just doing it. People come up to me afterwards like, oh well. What was the secret? I'm like, I practiced like a, a lot. I just did this. Like, it's just a physical thing. And then I showed you this thing and then I did it. Whereas the whole point of magic is lying really well. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not a magician. I don't have any. I can, you know, bounce a chair in my face. I can juggle six balls. I don't know how to do card tricks. I can do three card Monty. It's really it. Uh, I bored once in college. Okay. So taking your, your arch rivals, the magicians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the liars um do you think that they would make good fencers and why yeah so i definitely think that knowing how to lie well and play with visual trickery would be of benefit to anyone uh right especially the italians tend to faint more than some of the other countries uh, mm. so i think knowing how to do that and play off you know visual stimuli would likely be helpful but again i am not a magician myself what i can recommend is everyone learn how to juggle <laughs> uh it you know i definitely when i learned how to juggle uh at one point i just that same on my life i just wasn't able to make it to practice for a few months and then i rolled into a tournament and did better than i had for like a year or so uh, it improves hand-eye coordination as well as proprioception, the idea like where your body is in relation to itself. Uh, better than a lot of other things can, you get really quick feedback. Uh, the human brain, for instance, is really good at having our tools like in our hands on their own sides of the body. Right? We don't do a lot of things in life where our arms are crossed. You know, if you think about driving, if you've done any carpentry work, there's just not a lot of times when your arms are crossed. So uh, I'm not like a neuroscientist. So if I get this wrong, send me a message. Uh, but to my knowledge, so the, the vague overview is like, if I move my left arm, the right side of my brain lights up. If I move my right arm, the left side of my brain lights up. But if my arm crosses my center line, it's using both sides of my brain. Mm -hmm. So every once in a while, especially if you're using sword and buckler, sword and dagger, you're going to end up in those crossed arm positions, right? If you're throwing a punta reversa and assuming you're right-handed, right? Your left hand is going to flip over. 
And I see a lot of folks get caught up in their own stuff. Uh, it's a little easier to get caught up with sword and dagger, just the keons will catch. Mm -hmm. So if you're juggling, a lot of juggling patterns exist in this crossed arm space. You're going to be like, oh, okay, that's fine. I can just do that all day long. I know where these objects are. Uh, I don't think that's the only way to get there. There's like a ton of top fencers who don't juggle. But there's like a lot of top <laughs> fencers and scholars who a lot of time doing it. It's like Puck Curtis, for instance, right? Like the maestro of maestros of the Sprays of yeah. World. Yeah. Started off in the SCA as a juggler and then moved to fencing. Nice. Yeah, no, I I definitely, I mean, from from that perspective, um, I can I can safely say that there are probably a lot of different things uh, other than just the sort of uh, the the concept of activating different parts of the brain and that cross-handedness and and developing the the coordination that's required to to be able to do that. Um, also, just the dedication of practice. You know, I mean, sometimes it's really good as a fencer. Um, especially as an advanced fencer, to go and try to learn a new skill. Um, just that way you can learn what it is to be a beginner again. Um, you know, try to get that that perception of, of what it is to be a beginner uh, because it helps you as somebody who can convey knowledge to other people, uh, how to convey knowledge to them, having that refreshment of being a beginner again and knowing what the struggles are when you don't have the coordination when you don't have the necessary um you know uh, ability to sort of comprehend something you know um, yeah. i know a lot of senior instructors who very intentionally will hand the newer students off to the more mid-level like provosts people like that uh because like yeah it's been so long that i don't remember what it's like uh, I think even past that initial phase, though, that cross-training with any other discipline, whether it's other kinds of fencing or any other movement art helps a lot. Uh, like if you had, can get a background in dance, everyone writing these books could dance, all of them, like without exception. Yeah. They knew how to dance. Uh, I can't ride a horse, but I'm sure it's great for you. Uh, but if you do gymnastics or... Uh, yoga or whatever, right? You'll have a wider vocabulary. You know, like, it's almost like being able to speak a foreign language or if you're a musician, being able to look at your instrument from another instrument's point of view. Add to that, that I think cross-training is one of the best tools we have to prevent repetitive stress injuries. Uh, mm -hmm. I hurt my shoulder a while ago, not while fencing. I heard about loading a truck, uh, but it you know affects my fencing sometimes. But I've seen a lot of shoulder injuries, a lot of knee injuries, a lot of elbow injuries in fencing. And if you're doing a physical activity outside of this, you're going to build up your musculature in ways outside of this narrow path that will help support the movements you're doing in fencing. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, that's, oh gosh, I saw this. Um, there was a really great article. It was actually about kids um learning sports and top athletes uh that end up becoming professionals and most top athletes that end up becoming professionals it was talking about how they have their primary discipline which is like let's say baseball right and a lot of the the really like premier like children's development programs for developing athletes will take kids that are really good at baseball and then 
at about the point where they kind of start to plateau um, in their development, they'll start teaching them basketball and like get them really into basketball. And, and so they'll do this cross training and they'll cross train them in different sports. So every time they start to look like they're about to plateau, they'll take them into a different sport. And so then they'll start doing volleyball. Then they'll start doing, you know, golf or something like that. And it kind of like refreshes their mind a little bit. It takes them out of the sort of cognitive dissonance of just being stuck in the same position um, and, and kind of like going over the same things over and over again. And it, it pulls them out and then they can come back to it with a fresh mindset and then continue forward. And they see a lot of growth. Oh yeah. I do that all the time, right? That's the nice thing about having rapier and secondaries and side sword and long sword is like, I will hit a wall with one of them. And then instead of being frustrated and pushing through it, uh, which, you know, I spent many years trying to do. I was like, oh, okay. I'm just going to do longsword for the next three weeks. I'll come back. Uh, I see also, right, if we go a little wider, there was a long time uh, when I was training a little harder with my juggling specifically, where either my juggling would be doing well or my fencing would be doing well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was almost always doing one really well at, in any given week. Uh, or at least in my solo practice for juggling and like my, you know, uh, my group practice for fencing, uh, it's like a little harder to measure the performances in tournaments, but I was like, no, oh, okay. Like I have clear data that's coming in every day or a few days for this. Uh, oh God, I think our connection went, okay. This is fun. I love the internet. Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, you're back. Okay. Sorry. Well, yeah. Cut my sarcasm later. Uh, so yeah, either my throwing <laughs> was doing really well or my fencing was doing really well. But if you know one of them just wouldn't be doing great at any given time, and I could get sad and mopey about that. Uh, but if I had something else that I was doing well, then I was just in a better mental place. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, no, all no, my sure. mental eggs in one basket. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's you know that's really interesting because I think recently I I've kind of gone on this this journey of of going backwards in time. Started studying Fiore, and then at the same time, uh, in in my sword and buckler study, like my personal study, I took a break from really looking at the Bolognese sources. Um, because I felt like I was stuck in this kind of, I made some really great discoveries and things that I was looking for, especially with Manchiolino. Um, and I, I'll talk about those things at a later time. I'm supposed to talk to David Biggs, another SEA. It's going to be an SEA month on the, uh, <laughs> on the podcast. Hey, Biggs is the person who turned me on to Anonimo. I talked to him like a few years ago. I, like I decided to learn Bolognese longsword. And I was like, do you know anything? And none of my guys do longsword. And he, and just sent me over like the free translation that was floating around of Stephen Freitas's version before he put out his uh, printed translation. And I spent a whole summer working through that. I was actually, I was on contract out of state. So I was drilling that. And then I was hanging out at the local human school where we're, we're like, they're all trying to do Meyer. And I was like, huh, what if I did this thing instead? Uh, and it's like kind of used them <laughs> to uh, hone my skills. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's um, it's good stuff. But I, you know, kind of going back to what I was I was going for is I, I needed to take a break. So I 
decided to look at other sources that weren't Bolognese sources. Um, and I found things, I found things in like looking at Lignitzer, looking at, at Tallhofer for Sword and Buckler that actually really kind of helped me come back to Manciolino and just have a different feeling for how to approach Manciolino. Um, you know, not like pulling specific German things into it, but really just kind of like a different framework, a different tactical mindset of how to approach fighting with a sword and buckler that I think really kind of enriched the way that I'm looking at Manciolino where I'm like, oh, wait a second. All right. So I was doing this kind of as like a Larga action, you know, trying to stay a little bit wider, but what if I actually use this as a way to get in so that way I can get a buckler press on their hands, you know, the way that, you know, you would see the Germans do it. And then I was like, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. This is actually even better because I'm not doing this from out of measure and then basically just trying to like hope that their sword doesn't come around my buckler in some way. I'm actually controlling their buckler and now I'm cutting to the leg. And I was like, oh, okay. Like this is, this is really informative. This is really good stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I saw a lot of growth. I went back, redid all my interpretations for Manchileno Sword and Large Buckler, and um, and I, I really like where it's at. I think they're they're really effective. So nice, yeah. I definitely benefit a lot. The first, or sorry, the first system I started after my progression in Italian rapier was actually doing Pacheco's rapier. Uh, I have kind of like reached the award level. Uh, like the rank I was aiming for in the SCA. And I came back and I went to the big Spanish coming practice. I was like, oh, okay, teach me this thing. And the jump from Gigante to Pacheco is bigger than any other jump I've done in Like going from Rapier to Bolognese or even Bolognese, like I touched on Fury a little bit. They're all in the same cultural milieu, right? There's some differences, there's different tools, but even using the same tool in a Spanish context, I was like, wait, I can't lunge? What, what do I do now? <laughs> uh, it took me forever. I felt so bad at fencing for a while. Uh, like, I just got destroyed the one tournament I rolled into where I was trying to practice Spanish a lot. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying to do two things at once. But having that outside perspective taught me a lot about the Italian sources. I think also having people from other uh, traditions at my local practice has been just a huge benefit. Uh, right, I can still take the tools within my system. Like I don't have to go outside of it to figure out how to solve this problem, but I'm being posed new questions and figuring out how to use these same tools and putting them together to solve that. Uh, like I know, for instance, there's a local fencer who specializes in German and one of the things he does when he goes to large events, uh, German is like less prevalent in the SCA uh, as opposed to HEMA where it's kind of the norm. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah. cool. No one here knows what I'm doing. I'm going to hit you in the face now because you're going to be confused. Yeah. Uh, whereas like I've been posed those questions a lot of times uh, or like the Spanish, for instance, if two Spaniards are fighting each other, they're physically going to be a lot closer to each other than if two Italians are, just because of how the stance works. But you take a Spaniard and you make them fight someone who's doing fabrics all the time and they figure out measure really fast. At the same time, like he'll watch videos of some of the Spanish people who only fight other Spaniards. And he's like, oh, you, 
you should take a step back. Like, this is what <laughs> a friend of mine is going to run you down. Uh, but you're not dealing with lunges. You don't have to do that. Uh, and I think, like, even in period, you see this a little more in the later 16th, early 17th century texts, but I'm sure it was still happening in the 1530s of Italians didn't only fence Italians, right? Thibault has a whole chapter on Fabris. Uh, some of the Spaniards a little later on talk about the Neapolitan school and having to fence them. Uh, you hear a bit from the earlier Italians of like them traveling a bunch, but they don't really do like shout outs until I want to say like either the Vienna Anonimo Marcelli, I'm not sure which one's first off the top of my head, but they specifically are like, hey, this author by name. Uh, I feel like the Germans might quote each other. I don't know how much they talk about people outside of Germany. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I can think of some like one off quotes off the top of my head to just kind of like reference like certain things. I mean, you know, in 32278, it says that Lichtenauer traveled far and wide. Yeah. Um, Joachim Meyer sort of uh, echoes that and says that he traveled to learn the art of fencing. Um, and I mean, if you look at the Italian wars in general, there were Spaniards, there were Germans, there were Italians, basically all together in Italy, you know, just fighting each other. Um, you know, so training with yeah, each other. We often underestimate how much travel anyone of like lower to middle class did uh, in pre-modern times. Like if you were a farmer, you probably just stayed put your whole life. Uh, but anyone more well off than that, right? Even going back to ancient Rome, like you have people going from Greece to Egypt to Italy all of the time. This isn't like an yeah. unknown phenomenon. Uh, it takes them a longer, right? You're not going to do it all in the same year, but it wasn't uncommon to travel a bunch in your lifetime, right? Fabris like, goes north and south throughout uh, his life, right? He goes to Denmark. He like, might have been in England for a minute. We're not 100% sure, right? Back down. He's, I think he's from Padua. Again, if I got that wrong, feel free to Google it in which an hour and correct me. Uh, but, you know, people are moving about, uh, right? If you're part of a guild, right, a little earlier on, you're literally a journeyman. Like, your title is I move around a lot and go from place to place. So there's definitely cross-pollination happening, uh, right? We have a while before, like, the big fight between the Spaniards and the English, with, like, the sinking of the Spanish Armada. Like, you have a bunch of Spaniards hanging around London, challenging people to duels. So they clearly had to use their system to answer other systems at the time. Uh, I think sometimes we get caught up a little bit today of trying to make them all fight each other at once. Uh, I'm like, hey, this I-33 person is trying to fight a rapierist, and I think that's perhaps the a slight <laughs> bit silly. Uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, that's kind of. I'm sure people doing Dalagokie uh, or whatever else was happening at the time that we don't have were fighting people doing Meyer. But they're both in the 1570s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and Dalagokie, I mean, you can, 
the way that I read Delagoki at least is he's basically a response to, um, and he he mentions this at the beginning of his book, the fact that the popular style of fighting with sword in one hand has basically become all narrow play. And so he's yeah. he's basically referencing people transitioning to fighting with rapiers and, and oh, yeah. even looking at his guard setup, the fact that he keeps it all to narrow guards um, and basically still uses, you know, uh, pr like Primo, Seconda, Terza, and Corta, but with, you know, Bolognese guard names, um, you know, it just kind of shows that that's, that's where his, his whole like framework is at. And, you know, he gives that, that spiel at the beginning of his text where he's like, you know, the, the fencing of the ancients was, was wider and, you know, it was beautiful and people like were kind of like lauded for it. Um, but the fencing of today is very narrow. And then he's like, I'm going to teach you both. So. Oh God. I love people complaining way back when of how everyone today is terrible. I'm going to go back to how we used to do it. Uh, like, <laughs> everyone has done that. Like, Ask any old person throughout all of history, and that will be their complaint. Uh, like, We have an, a Socrates quote. It's likely apocryphal, but even then, you know, you're a few hundred years off the mark of like kids these yeah. days learning to read and not memorizing things. <laughs> how dare they? <laughs> Uh, yeah, Dalgoki is yeah. ragging on like how there aren't any real maestros left in the 1570s. I'm reading this now, being like, oh, oof. okay, man. Do you think? I, I imagine it's out there, and maybe somebody who's a uh, sort of a modern historian can kind of point this out. Do you think in like in the 1950s? And, and 60s that like there were like academic articles writing about how like tv was going to ruin everybody's brains and rot society well, and it was a form yeah. of mind control the way it's that like people are writing about like social media these days <laughs> yeah you see that like with the history of like textual communication of like ah letter writing is the worst and then telegraphs are ruining letter writing uh, <laughs> all the way to like text speak is awful so like those darn DM yeah, it's just like a constant human complaint. Uh, I'm sure there were saw lots of great maestros at Dog Goofy's time. Him among them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, we're fine. And the the best of all of them was Vigiani, so <laughs> uh, uh, I tried reading him a while ago and it just uh, I could not finish that book. Why not? Because uh, I had to keep going back and referencing, A, who are these folk characters I don't know? And B, what did you call that guard I already know again? Oh, man. So uh, Stephen Freitas and I are going to do an, a, a podcast episode pretty soon here. And uh, we're going <laughs> to... We're gonna actually go through, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about who his folk heroes are. Because um, hey, it, it's pretty cool. For me, great. Uh, oh I yeah, no, that's well. Th that's what the podcast is for, man. That's what that's yeah. what this is for. We're just disseminating information. But we're gonna go and we're gonna talk about all the condottieri that he references and why they're important, why he gives them different yeah. guards and everything like that. Because, yeah, but like you know, I and a few others. Interesting. Digging a bit ago. Uh, the same guy who sponsors one of Trigante's books is the sponsor of Galileo. Interesting. Yeah. That is super interesting. So I really want to imagine that they met each other. Yeah. 
you know, I have no proof yeah, that's for that, but like, wouldn't that be great to see those two guys in a room and just like watch? Well, when I, I so I was talking to to Mike Pendergrast um, about Pietro Monti, and there was actually a group. There's a group in Italy right now that's looking for documents because there's sort of a prevailing theory um, in the academia, or at least in, in some research that he was involved in, that um, Pietro Monti was involved with uh, Leonardo da Vinci. And that there might be there might be sketches that Leonardo da Vinci did for Pietro Monti. Nice. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, I know we have. Um, who's the one uh, German artist we have who did a fencing book? We don't know who wrote the book. It's like it's not Albert Durer. That was it. Is Durer? Yeah, Albert Durer. Yeah. Yeah, he, it, it's actually it's pretty interesting with uh, with Durer because he's not even though he makes references to being a part of the Brotherhood of Saint Mark or like the the Lichtenauer group. Um, he's oh, the Marx yeah. yeah, the Marx Uh He's he's basically copying plays from Wallerstein for a lot of his his stuff, um, which is interesting because a lot of times in the in the German world they try to separate those two things yeah. um but he he kind of pens them together so he might be an outlier i don't know but um it's interesting nonetheless uh, i definitely think that there's often more cross-pollination between these groups than we often attribute after the fact like it's easy to craft the narrative i don't know a ton about the free factors versus the marx brooders there's like a general theme of like Oh, well, there were these people and they were here and there's these people and they were there and never did the two speak. And like, people spoke a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm like, hey, that, that guy across the street is kind of cute. What if I, what if I talk to him? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that we've got like two extremes, right? There's like the, uh, these people would never like share ideas with one another. And then there's the whole like, you know, it was all like, you know, uh, what is it? The, what's the other gang? The, it's the Jets and the what? Sharks. The what? The Sharks. Yeah, the sharks and the jets is yeah. like the sharks and the jets, where everybody's like coming out in the middle of the street, snapping their fingers, getting ready to like throw down, and just like get into this big mess or brawl in the middle of the road. Uh, <laughs> I wish all of the fights I've seen in life were like that well choreographed. What a better world would it be? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, you just put out a video of the anonymous Bolognese and looking at his strata techniques. So what were some of the things, some of the insights that you got from kind of looking at what he was doing with his strata techniques? Yeah, so there's a few things that are going on. Uh, the first, we often have this idea of like, it's ignoble to just hit people in the hands you have to go for a real adult target. Nah, hit them in the hands. That was their fault. They put them there. Just do it. All right. Like a third of his plays, or on the response especially, is step back, hit them in the hands. 
especially because these plays, uh, he doesn't like give us the clearest starting guard. Most of them are essentially like false edge to false edge and then extended Porter to Faro. Uh, although the last two, I'm fairly certain, are on the opposite side in Cotalonga because it doesn't make a lot of sense otherwise around. Uh, but the setup is the same for all of these. And so right? when you when you say, that, yeah, and when you say to step back and hit him in the hands, you're talking about the counters, right? Yeah. Not the actual, the not the sort of the A side of the play, but more the B side, right? Right. I think that's there's more for us to read on the B side there, right? Because this the walking in uh, is the same every time, right? It's just you start here, false edge to false edge in Strata. It's not right what Manchelino and Dalgokie do really well of we did this in Guarda Alacorno or we're doing this in Chinghaire, Porto de Ferro, Marca. Right. It's no, like the, the position from the start is the same. Uh, I have just chosen as the aggressor to do this action. You have to deal with it. I think one of the themes we see throughout fencing treatises, uh, Bolognese or not is your defense has to be rock solid, right? If you get hit with this sword once, you are done. You have to be able to stop all of all blows that can never come at you. Your attacks, you can have one or two, that's fine. The response of pass back, hit them in the hands, solves a lot of problems. Uh, yeah. I think the, the other answer, so the step back, hit them in the hands is largely for if they're hitting you uh, with the double A of their blade or the thrust or anything at that kind of range. If they're coming in for the preza, it's generally do it, but better with a, like in a smaller action in proportion to theirs. So, oh, okay, they're going to do all these fancy things, run forward, and favorite phrase in any fencing manual of all time, feed them the apple. <laughs> I read that the well, first time like, a few years ago and just like grabbed my teeth and didn't let go for three days. I was just like, oh. Yeah. Ah, yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's really interesting because I, I think that especially from you know, the, the context of how this, the strata plays are set up. Um, I I've always kind of thought, you know, Manchilino gives a little bit of this advice. And I think even Marazzo kind of does it too. Like he constantly referenced the fact or Marazzo in particular, that when you cut like the, their the natural attacks, right. The, our Mandrito, he says, what, like Mandrito reverso and a stoccata. Right, and these are the natural attacks. These are the the three basic things that anybody's gonna do, that anybody can do, right? And the strata, like, if you read the way that they talk about the strata plays, is really where the creativity and the sort of like higher level concepts of fencing start to come in. So, you know, you might enter with a, you might step in and cut a reverso, and now you're in false edge to false edge. And you're going to progress into your next action, which is basically you closing, right? And so as a as a defender, you've made the parry of the reverso. And then if that person continues to step in, you still have the opportunity to take a step back. And I think that's why you're kind of attacking the hands. And then 
if they do get close enough that they can go in for that press and they can start trying to wrestle at the sword, then yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense that you would kind of go for a smaller wrestling action to interrupt the bigger wrestling action that they're going for. So you're kind of trying to interrupt them through whatever close thing that is that they're, they're going for because they are close enough that they can go for those wrestling plays. Yeah, I think one of the other things to know, I also did an article on this a bit ago, Morozo and the Anonimo differ in this regard. So when Morozo comes in, right, if you come in on Morozo more specifically, he's like, oh, okay, cool. I will ditch my sword and do a suicide roll. Fine. <laughs> yeah. Into it. Like, let's just grapple. The Perugian right. play, which is the uh, most ridiculous thing ever. <laughs> uh, no, nah, there's, there's more ridiculous stuff. Uh, I one time saw my friends dagger fighting and they ended up like not drilling, just sparring with, you know, the play it's, I think it's in Morozo's dagger section. I know it's in Fiori's where you're behind the other person and you've pulled their arm through their legs. Yes. Yeah. So they ended yes. up there and, I, and the whole room was just like, anyone who had seen that play before was like, I can't believe they did the thing. <laughs> they did the thing. Yeah. That yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, so, it is such a crazy play. Yeah. Morozo straight up suicide rolls. Uh, the Anonimo, much more in line with myself. So I grew up as like a short person. Uh, uh -huh. I'm 5'10 now, but I didn't have any height till junior year of high school. So part of my brain still has that like short, small person mentality of like, oh no, that closed on me. They're going to be really big and it's going to hurt. Uh, the Anonimo doesn't do any real throws, right? Their grappling is all at the hills. They're not going to ditch their sword. They're going to push your arms and then... Uh -huh either pommel you or cut you in the head. Uh, occasionally, the animal will just not finish the play, which I really appreciate. Of like, hey, I got you to the point where everything is open. I don't, I don't need to explain it. You, yeah, do you just, yeah, do you it. just stab them wherever you, you want. Like, yeah. Sometimes they'll just they'll give us the option of pommel or cut, but sometimes it's like, you're, you're good. You, you got it. Uh, where a lot of times, when I'm training shorter fencers, uh, they'll come in and they'll they'll like take one or two steps in and they'll have found the sword. Like, well, I haven't hit them yet, so I must abandon my plan and leave. I'm like, no, just keep going. Like, if you have the line, hit them. Take as many steps. Right. All the training is to get you to having the line. The training after that is go forwards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Close measure. Um, you're right, though. I mean, Moronzo does like to, to ditch his sword um, a lot. It's interesting because Manchielino has a little bit of a, a similar approach to the Anonimo. Um, I saw a lot of similarities to some of the actions um, that you kind of worked out um, we're, we're similar to some of the ideas that I've come up with looking at Michelino strata plays, um, you know, where you're, it's like, you're turning your flat over their sword and then snapping your hands up over top, um, with the, the, basically the palms out, um, Michelino kind of does something very similar to that. Um, you know, going for blade grabs and things, uh, he's got a lot of that kicking people. I didn't see that, but <laughs> no, I really cool. enjoyed the rude 
we are here to mess people up. Marozza is very much there to impress the ladies. Uh, I'm like, I understand that to a degree. Yeah, to some degree. I mean, in, in some parts, he's kind of mean. Like, he, he kicks, like, Manchiolino tells you to kick the person in the stomach when he tells you to kick somebody. Yeah. And it's basically the same counter. Like, you're you're trying to turn that false edge over their sword and then snap your hand over top, right, to snap the false edge down on their head. If they counter that and they really push down on your sword, then he tells you to kick them in the stomach, right? Morazzo has something relatively similar. But instead of kicking him in the stomach, he tells you to kick him in the balls. Oh, yeah. Doesn't he say to do it gallantly? Yeah, and then step back and strike a gallant pose is what he says. Yeah. Um, and then, so like, and then, even like the like Swanger has like a note at the bottom there. Like, his <laughs> definition of gallant and my definition of gallant are different. Uh, uh, yeah. no, there's a, there is a whole chapter uh, in Morozzo's two-handed section of non-lethal plays Yeah, where he... At one point, just smacks somebody across the face with the flat of his sword. That's mean. Like, I feel like it'd be nicer just to kill the guy. Uh, I realize part of it has to do with, like, the legality of dueling, depending on where and when you are. And also, you know, we don't always want to kill our opponents. Right? Sometimes I just want to disable them. It's the nice thing about the cut to the hands. You know, this person was super aggressive and hot-headed. And I have stepped back and mangled their hands. Uh, no one's gonna charge me for murder unless they like catch gangrene or whatever. But they're done. This fight's over. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it, it's interesting because I mean, Morazzo, rather than going to the hands and his counters to a lot of his strata plays, actually goes to the head. So he'll 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 take a step back and then strike a fendente to the head. And it's it's kind of an interesting parallel where you know you've got like sort of these different approaches but i mean that's most of the time that's what you see for the counters to the strata plays if somebody's starting to close in on you and they're really closing measure or closing distance and you need to deal with it in some way you're going to take a step back and you're going to do a wide play action that's going to hit them and you know whatever the target is um which is interesting you know i mean it's interesting that the anonymous is going for the hands rather than the head and the question is, is, is Morato closer in his strata plays than the Anonymous and his strata plays? Um, you know, that's one of the things that I noticed about watching your video is that you guys were kind of like, like you were kind of crossed like at the tips of the swords rather than crossed at the middle. Um, but it, it makes sense if like, that's kind of where you guys were coming from in terms of like, yeah, if that person takes a step back and you're kind of stepping in, then the hand is the most reasonable target. So there's there's definitely some some you know some like a logical progression there, which is interesting. Yeah, I think if you're all the way at the true mezzospada, it's gonna be really hard to throw those double feints. You're just not gonna have a lot of time to do that. Uh, there was one play we did in particular where I was like, oh, this is a lot of part of it. I, like I suspect he might just have left out the footwork. Um, but we, in our interpretation, uh, so it's like my friend Jesse Kula and I were the other guy. He's like the head longsword instructor at CSG. Uh, mm -hmm. We're like, we don't want to add in much more than what's here uh, for the sake of this project. So it's me standing there throwing like two or three feints in a row and then striking. And yes. especially as a rapierist, like the ball names will throw, often throw one feint without moving. Uh, sometimes too. 
uh, or the weird thing they'll do is they'll sometimes they'll do it with a movement of the foot. Like in rapier, you never faint while the foot moves. It's always an upper body faint. Yeah. Uh, so doing it with a with a motion of the foot is a little strange. But standing there and throwing two or three feints in a row without moving my feet, I was like, oh god. <laughs> and then the response is like hit them in one tempo. Uh, there's a few other like, oh okay, I'm gonna open with this Rodopio. And my friend Jesse was like, oh right, yeah, hey, I've heard that rule before. Don't do that. Don't don't open with like a true Rodopio. False Amanco, fine. Uh, but like, yeah, don't start this play with a Rodopio Uni. And then you know, I was like, okay, cool. Just like stab them. They die now. Yeah. It, I think the Bolognese just did that because they wanted to piss off Joachim Meyer. Yeah, that's fine by me. Uh, right, because he never to paint the first intention. Yeah. You also see in the two-handed sections strikes to the abdomen, the cuts there, you don't really see in the one-handed part. Uh, so that says something to me about the mass of the weapon. I realize that, like, yeah. at the end of the day, hitting really hard doesn't make that much more of a difference than, like, edge alignment. Right. Uh, but there's probably something to be said about, like, hey, this is a heavy enough object that's moving where a cut to the ribs, you know, assuming you're wearing a wool doublet and like linen shirt, right? Just as your street wear, because it's colder then than it is now. And also they didn't have, you know, centralized heating. Uh, and like the, do it just in your, like with, do it just in your shirt sleeves or even less to prevent infection idea hadn't really shown up by then. Uh, you know, like in the one-handed part, you wouldn't throw that tondo there because it's gonna annoy them when you cut them in the ribs. So it's not yeah. gonna end the fight, but a cut with a two-handed sword will. And like, oh, okay, that tells me something about the weapon that's being employed. Yeah, no, that's that's a really interesting observation. Um, and I I agree. I mean, you know having a lot of experience with cutting with both, I would not, I would take a shot to the ribs with a side sword well before I'd ever take <laughs> anything from a two-handed sword. Oh, yeah. I've done not a ton of, like, sharp, like, cutting with sharps, but, like, I've done some. Uh, you hand me a one-handed sword, I can go through a water bottle all day long, but you give me a tatami mat, like, long sword, I can make that happen. That a lot of effort it's yeah. not easy to cut a single tatami mat with a one-handed sword. Yeah, it, it definitely it takes a lot of focus on body mechanics. It's it's really interesting. Yeah. Um and uh yeah, it's it's definitely not easy. Um but you know, there's also something to be said for you know what a, a single-handed sword is really optimized for, you know? I mean, is it is that it, it's it's not necessarily a cleaving tool. Obviously, you know, even looking at the Bolognese system, the point is oftentimes what we see as something that is the priority, especially when you're talking about like play that comes from like Stretta or from Mezzospada. Um, whereas like when you're in wide play, you can use these big wide guards and okay. Yeah. You might, if you, especially if you had a shallow target or something like that, like the hands or something like that, 
yeah, you might actually cleave something off, especially if you've got your full body arcing. You know, you're going from a high guard, you're cutting down to a low guard because you have the space and you're cutting at somebody's hand. There's a pretty good chance, yeah, you could probably, you know, cut somebody's hand off. Um, but you're not oftentimes doing that from close, unless, unless, un like in Murazzo with his single-handed sword, you've dispatched their sword with a, a false edge beat, and yeah. then you cut that reversal back on the other side, and he tells you to cut, cleave through their teeth all the way down to their knees, right? Um, but you think about that cut, it's it's a wide open cut. You think about yeah. the angulation of, of what he's basically telling you to do between where the cut comes in, like at the teeth, and coming through at the knees, and that's a really sharp angle, right? Like when a lot of times when we end up cutting tatami, we're cutting at like 45 degree angles. It's kind of like how you're taught to cut it tatami is that, that nice 45 um, that they, you know, really kind of focus on for competition. But that's not like, especially with this kind of a weapon, that's not where you're going to get your best cleaving cut. You actually want it to be really steep. And that's when you would end up like just shearing off pieces of a tatami mat. And then, you know, you don't get as many cuts. So that kind of sucks. But I think that's important to remember. I just need that piece to stop working. I don't need it to come off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like your metacarpals will break. It doesn't require a ton of force. Uh, this is why bare knuckle boxers, way back when, punched mainly at the solar plexus, not at the head, because their metacarpals would break. Like if you know anyone who works in ER, they can look at an x-ray and be like, oh, yeah, a boxer's fracture. This person was in a fight. Yeah. You get that from hitting someone else who's made of flesh, uh, taking a piece of steel that at that angle doesn't bend and <laughs> whacking it into their hand. I just need their sword not to be there and possibly also for them not to be able to grapple me. And if I can do both of those things... I don't need a like Lacushner style hand flying off photo to happen. Oh, you mean Tallhofer, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I just want them not to be able to hurt me. Yeah, no, and and that's that's Mancilino's advice, right? So in the very beginning of his his general advice, he says to you know, he's like fencing in the cell, you never attack the hand because it's sort of a gentleman's affair. But if when you're fighting in a real fight, you're going to attack the hand one, because it's going to be your closest target. And two, because if you disable somebody's sword hand, then you basically stop them from being able to continue the fight. Right. I mean, that's, that's my, that's my sort of modernization of his, his general advice, but that's, that's what he says. So you can see a lot of the false Manco to the face of, hey, we're done now. Uh, this probably won't kill you. It might, medicine's not great. Uh, but especially if like I'm in strata and I just kind of thrust it over your shoulder and I do this flick into your head, yeah. uh, your face is gonna be messed up. The blood might go into your eyes and you might not be able to see, like head wounds. No one's ever done mm -hmm. first day and like bleed tremendously. But this falsa monco is not, going to kill you uh, yeah but like hey i hit you in the head do we want to continue right and it wasn't the duels we're seeing at this point in time aren't the duels to first blood we see like the post-napoleonic era uh but they're duels to incapacitation like so if you can't walk anymore for instance there's a lot 
Like Dalgoke cussed the leg a bunch. Uh, we don't have to continue this fight. Like they're gonna call it. Yeah, no, that's that's a a great point. Um, you know, there's there's definitely you know historical anecdotes about the Italians being dirty fencers because they like to attack the legs. Um, sure. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is it is really fascinating. Um, and it, it, that's actually something that I've kind of taken into my approach at looking again, kind of going back to this whole like re-evolution that I've gone through looking at a lot of Michelino sword and buckler stuff. There are a lot of times where I've realized that, you know, certain actions that I'm doing, I don't need to, I don't need to necessarily make something like this big cut. All I have to do is just get my sword into a place and then with his body mechanics, the way that he moves by either rotating his back leg and then stepping back or, or things like that, a lot of times because I've placed with a cut into somebody's tendon, for example, in the back of their leg or across their forearm, by stepping back, I'm doing a drawing action that's going to pull that sword across their forearm. Oh, and yeah. now it's going to, you know, it's going to open up their arm. And so, you know, like, you really kind of think about these things from the perspective of, am I dealing with a sharp sword? Am I dealing with a blunt sword? You know, a lot of what we do is dealing with blunt swords, but if you're training it more as a martial art, rather than going for touches and things like that, you know, having the, the, the perspective of what that sharp sword is going to do when you actually draw it across something, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really good and it's really informative. And I, I, I think it's been a, a pretty fascinating um, exploration. Of course, you know, there will never be an instance in my life where I can actually use that, which is fine. But it is it is interesting to try to see this from that perspective of, is this really what he was going for? Is this something that would be viable or practical? Right. And I think it translates a bit over to tournament fighting as well. Uh, there's definitely, in certain parts of the country more than others, a trend towards, ah, I got to hit them with everything I got. I don't want to hold back. Got to hit them with this sword. And like, A, edge alignment is the thing you care about in the cut more than like the speed at which you're swinging. But B, like they also weren't swinging for the fences. So I don't need to cleave through their skull. I need to mash up their face, which I'm not going to try it out, but I trust a sharp piece of steel to do pretty easily. Yeah. I've messed up shaving, like, that's not a lot of force. Uh, and I was like, oh, darn, I have this thing. I'm not going to wear my white button down today. Uh, like, oh, okay, cool. I got a sword with intent. Like, that's going to be bad. I'm like, great. I can just kind of tap you in the head. Like I was saying earlier, I will fight uh, with, like, the local Hema folks here wearing a modern fencing jacket and hard elbows, essentially. I don't have like a big Michelin man outfit to pad me from all the incoming blows. Uh, and I think that like we, I like the calibration I, that has been cultivated where I'm fighting. Uh, and like the SCA does this a little more generally, although I'm sure it changes from place to place. I'm like, oh yeah, like you'll often be like a wool doublet, but then just like a single layer of linen shirt is gonna cover your arms. Uh, you know, put stuff over the all the hard points where, like, you know, uh, I'll have hard back of the head, uh, right? I have my, like, that guy's gorget. I have knee pads. I have elbows. 
Uh, I also I have a, a f- either fight in gauntlets or like a full swept hilt of some sort because uh, I work <laughs> with my hands for a living. But outside of that, like oh okay, uh, you know I was like fight and like fairly minimal gear because the thing I'm trying to recreate is not like Darth Maul cut their cut them like through the torso. It's like mess them up with a sharp piece of steel, which does its job. And then walk away. Yeah. No. Yep. I I agree. Yeah. So, so some other observations of of things that you experienced when you were kind of going through uh, the anonymous two handed sword plays. Were there any others? Uh, uh, he tends to use Guardia detest. Yeah, Guardia detest like the long head, uh, the two handed version more than I am used to, right? There's definitely like some coming up, striking with the keons, with the lugs. Uh, according to Stephen Frodis, like it's not clear which one he's referring to, and I don't speak Italian. Uh, I tried learning on Duolingo, it didn't go great. Uh, <laughs> like those actions, I think are one of the next places for me to explore in my own fencing uh, that seem a little foreign to how I see the fight. Uh, the other piece that I find really hilarious is person A will throw this or that feint, and his advice to person B is ignore it. Yeah. Don't move. <laughs> they threw a feint, and it's their fault. Now you are going to punish them. Do this thing. Uh, whereas, like, Dalagokie has you respond to their feint. Yeah. yeah. Mancinolino uh, does the same thing. He he has you ignore the faint, like ignore the faint, and I'm like, really? Like, is that where we're going with this? Like, you want me to just ignore the fact that they're about to, like, you know, cut me in the head? Ah, it's a faint. You'll uh, just see it. Yeah, uh, you'll just. Pharaoh talks about this a bit, beginning of his book, where he's like, in the ideal art of fencing, we don't have faints because we're all perfect. Uh, in the practice of fencing, we have them, but like in this idealization, Kemper is very much with the most bolognese of the rapier masters, where right? like, he even uses Guardia de Faccia at one point randomly. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, as well, uh, so by the time we're reading the bolognese authors, they're part of the papal states, uh, where I don't remember which city Kemper lives in, but like he lit, he's living in the papal states as well when he's writing. Uh, so we have some like more like you know smaller scale cross pollination happening, uh, but yeah, you know the other piece is I've definitely seen a lot of bad faints in my life. If you can tell it's a faint, just stand there. Yeah, no. Look, I mean, hit them now. yeah, no. I there have been plenty of times fighting that I have fought people that will just like faint oftentimes out of measure and oh, with yeah. no real like commitment and you just i yeah you're just kind of standing there you're like all right you know they'll do it like three or four times they're just kind of like up there like swinging their sword around and you're like all right eventually you've got to do something i can keep stepping back because the more you try to even step in and, and keep twirling your sword i'm not gonna i'm not gonna stand here for this so right. you know you, you keep doing your thing and we'll, we'll get there eventually but um yeah i i agree there there definitely are some bad feints for sure 
that are easy to read, but there's also some really good feints that are really hard to read. Sure. Uh, I think at the end of the day, right, if you don't know it's a feint, deal with it. Uh, if you do know it's a feint, it's perfectly acceptable. Just stand there and wait for them. Uh, I feel, you know, the scene in Indiana Jones where he just pulls out his gun and starts rolling the sword mm-hmm. around? Yeah. Well, that's what a lot of these plays are of like person A did three feints and stepped in with this fun thing. There's a Rodopio and all. Person B stabs in face. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's usually my general response, honestly. Like if somebody starts fainting, like I was just describing, I will wait for them to, you know, start to pull their sword offline and I will stab them in the face. Yeah. Because inevitably, they're going to give you that tempo where you can step in and actually go for an offense. Right. So. Yeah, he's doing a lot of like proportionally smaller actions of step in with like a, either the essentially a thrust with the pommel, thrust the face, or like a half cut uh, while the other person was in strata and then decided to throw a full cut. <laughs> they made choices. Yeah, they did. They did. Yeah, that's that's what happens, right? Like you do a wide play action, like raise your sword um, from narrow play, and you're you're gonna get hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the things that I love about Manchilino's general advice. That that one off statement that he gives about the thrust being the natural attacks from the low guards. Um, it's it's brilliant. Uh, and and his, his exposition. Thing, like- the thrust is the better option. Like we're starting to move more towards that rapier space. I'm like, yeah, you should just stab them. It's yeah. definitely faster. Uh, we see this as well. I took a great class years ago with Christian Tobler about like the legality of force. And mm-hmm. he was talking about the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, but I'm sure some of it translated like, in these situations, you were allowed to put your hand on your hilt. And in these situations, you're allowed to pommel strike. And in these situations, you're allowed to strike flat, and in these with the cut, but only like the most dire instances where you're allowed to thrust at someone. Uh, if you ever get the chance to read or have read the Martial Ethic in Early Modern Germany, yeah, it's a great book. Great book. But it's some idea of like the thrust will go into their organs and then they will die because our medicine mm-hmm. is bad. Uh, if I cut them, you know, I might just like mess up their face and they'll be scarred and everyone will laugh at them. That'll be fine. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, the difference between, you know, committing murder and, you know, like embarrassing somebody or kind yeah. of going through. There's a very famous Hema uh, lecture that Mike Edelson gave at a long point where, you know, he went through and basically showed videos of machete fighting, like Cajun and african machete fighting and you know there there are videos of these people like literally just sitting there wailing on each other with machetes and cutting each other to like you know like just really cutting each other up um and just kind of like taking that into consideration as to like you know what does this cut to the arms do what does this cut to the body do you know you know what are we what are we considering here definitely interesting um so kind of staying in the same vein with the uh, sort of the anonymo plays, um, I'm going to take one of the questions that I usually use as like a general question and kind of like tailor it towards that, but also towards your quest of like trying to understand Alagoke. Um, so like as you were going through the anonymous plays and uh, l- like looking at his strata plays and then as you've been going through Dalagoke, 
what are some of the challenges that you faced um, in developing your interpretations and how have you overcome them? Yeah, so there's a few different things. Part of it is the lack of specificity. Um, Jalgoke is a little easier to read in this regard, particularly in regards to footwork, because uh, A, he's just naming the guards, and B, all of his guards are foot dependent. Uh, so the Kotalonga guards in specific, right, everyone else are kind of side agnostic, whereas Jalgoke has Kotalonga Alta as left foot forwards and Kotalonga Stretch as right foot forwards. So if you named the guard, you know where the feet are. Uh, the Unamo is not always doing that uh, as well. He's he's generally telling you which feet start uh, in front, but he's not always telling you where they end, although occasionally it goes the other way around. Uh, as well, he's just telling you false edge to false edge or true edge to true edge. He's not telling you Porta de Ferro or Cotolonga. So a lot of it is doing those pieces and playing with it and seeing which ones are more or less viable. Uh, as well, with both of them, especially the Stramazzone uh, or the Molinetto, uh, it's unclear how large of an action that is. Our default way of looking at that is often as like a full 360, right? Like the point comes all the way back, right? And mm -hmm. so essentially like Cotolonga e distesa, except without my arm going back, just like the rotation of the wrist and our elbow. Uh, but with the Shredda plays, you often don't realistically have time to make that full tuta volta, that full turn of the sword, right? You're often making much more of a mezza volta, a half turn, where you're cutting over the top. Uh, Dalgoki has this play that I use a ton. He tells you like, so you should in lie that you're going to parry and then cut around uh, oftentimes with a mezzo reverso right and you just go oh, okay cool you're gonna do this thing on the inside line whack right and just hit them in the hands <laughs> yeah but if he's telling you to do that as a tuta volta i'm like i'm gonna get stabbed there <laughs> yeah uh, i was on video and talking in a podcast and anyway, i'm gonna get stabbed before my point comes forwards again uh so i think some of the time it's a smaller circle and sometimes a larger circle and a lot of instructors these days will differentiate between those, but in the text, we're not always told that. On top of that, with the thrust, we don't always know where the edge alignment is happening as to whether, right, if I'm doing this punta reversa, am I doing it essentially uh, in like a later period porta or like a, almost a guardia de faccia, uh, depending like slightly earlier Guadalupe de Entrare on my true edge, or am I doing it going around the sword? Mm. Yeah, no, that's, um, that is, that is definitely a, uh, a bit of a challenge. Um, you know, I think that there's oftentimes similar language that's uh, a little just as ambiguous, right? Like, um, like for Marazzo or Mancialino, for example, your opponent throwing a staccata and just using staccata as a general term for a thrust. A lot of times you don't get the, the angulation or the sort of what kind of thrust they're giving you. You're just like, all right, they're going to thrust at me. Is it going to be a good thrust? I don't know. Are they just trying to shank me? You know, <laughs> is it just a thrust? Yeah. Um, there is definitely that frustration. Um, and, but, you know, I think from what you've been able to come up with, 
you know, following context clues, I imagine this is probably how you guys kind of came to this and you can speak to this. Um, you know, sometimes you can get context clues with either how the play progresses, how it ends, um, you know, what makes sense to put you in that position that you would be doing certain action and things like that, right? Is that kind of how you guys got there? Yeah, sometimes they'll be like, oh, okay, cool. Now he's going to give us a side on this Rodopio. And if I'm not going to throw a Reverso Rodopio while my sword is all the way off to the right side in Cotolonga, because now there's like a sword in the way. Oh, okay, so it's going to be on this side. So specifically, our interpretation was that the last two plays are like, I'm sure people will get, some people will disagree with me on calling it Cotolonga Porta de Ferra because it's, an extended guard with the false head, but I'm going to use it anyhow for specificity's sake. I'm like the last two plays are Cotolonga false edge to false edge, whereas all the other plays are Portrait of Pharaoh false edge to false edge. So otherwise, you're just kind of cutting in the air, or you're going to run into the sword that's already there. Hmm. Uh, there's also a lot of, and I think this is a problem in martial arts across the board of, hey, I have this multi-part plan and I didn't really describe, you see this much more in Marozzo, like we're not describing what the other person is doing. Because uh, yeah. if I'm doing all of these motions, they're probably going to parry one of them, maybe. They're like, right. I don't think they'll just stand there. <laughs> uh, so like the later, like the rapier treatises tend to be a little better on that like listing what the other person is doing in response to what you're doing. Whereas the Bolognese, uh, we'll do it some of the time, sometimes like a tempo or two, but past that you're like, I just did like a lot of things. I'm not sure where your sword is anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, this is definitely a, a challenge. Um, and for Murazzo in particular, um, definitely a, a, a thing that you wish would be better described for him. Um, yeah um so what is something that you think that we as a community can do to better reflect the sources in our fencing to better reflect the sources yeah uh, i touched on it a little bit earlier i think part of it has to do with properly calibrating uh you know if you get the chance go play with a sharp against an inanimate object uh, this is me not advising you to ever use a sharp against people. Please don't do that. Uh, I know there are some schools that like do sharp on sharp stuff. I ain't about that. Uh, I'm not going to pass judgment if you really know what you're doing, but I'm not advising that at all. Hashtag not legal advice. Uh, but, you know, if you get a chance to see how, it's like, especially on the thrust, right? Like, I've gotten the chance at a few events to like, people have rigged up dummies of this or that variety and like it takes so little force to go through three layers of linen holy crap yeah. uh, so i think understanding more accurately how the sword is going to work against a human body even like a clothed human body uh right throw like a few layers of cloth over your ballistic gel or dead pig uh so i think that's really helpful as well as like looking at them as a holistic system as opposed to a bag of tricks. Hmm. 
it can be really easy to get caught in the trap of, I have a lot of moves. Uh, I kind of see in, like my general idea of fencing regardless of the system, and I guess fighting more broadly, is this kind of three stages of development. Uh, you can say this both about fighters, but as well as like this technique or this concept, right? And you're gonna cycle back through, it's an iterative process. But your first is like, how do I do this? Right, if you don't know how to throw a Mandrita Fendente, we have to teach it to you. Like you're gonna show up, no one is born knowing how to throw a Mandrita Fendente. It's like a specific thing. It might not be that alien, uh, like lunging in rapier, for instance, has like a much steeper on-ramp than just like throw a basic cut. Uh, yeah. But even then, right, sword first, that's gonna be weird, people don't know how to do that. Uh, so I hand you like, just like these bricks, the second stage is I hand you a script, right? A lot of people spend a ton of time memorizing the assaulty or going, oh, okay. He gives us from this guard, we have these responses if the opponent does this thing. Uh, he warns us it's a non-exhaustive list, but he does give us a bunch of responses. And then the third level, which a lot of folks never really get to, is fighting from principles. A lot of people get stuck at, I need this script to fire and everything I'm gonna do is gonna get this person into that script so I can fire one of these few things I've trained really well. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, people are gonna do something weird that you don't know how to deal with, uh, whether that's just like some strange angle or they just studied a different system and you're not familiar with it. So it might not seem weird to them, but it seems weird to you. But if you can fight from principles, you're like, oh, okay, sword comes at me. I need to, right, bisect their sword. I'm going to point across this line. I'm going to find and gain, and then I'm going to stab them. And it doesn't matter where they are in space. If I apply this principle of a game mechanical advantage and then strike, or if I'm, the, if you go the opposite way of get them to engage with me, lie about how much engagement I'm giving them, have them overcommit and step back and hit them, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what the specifics are. As well, a lot of people, and I've been noticing this more and more often, not that people are worse, it's just like I've been looking at it more, uh, don't know how to get past first or second intention. Right. Right. And if your script is only this long, or if it's gone a direction that you didn't expect, you're like, oh, okay, I don't know what to do now. I shall just retreat, even though I have this line. Whereas if you're fighting from principles, it doesn't matter how many steps it takes, your principle will teach you how to deal with it, regardless of what it is. Right. Yeah, that's that's uh that's really interesting. So um and I, I think you're touching on something that is uh, is really important. So I want you to elaborate on that. So when you when you're talking about teaching from principles, what are some of the things that you focus on when you're um, kind of like if you were to build out your your principle framework, things yeah. that people can look for? Because I think one of the things that is really important too, as people are reading through the text, and I think something that oftentimes people miss is they're not even reading the text for the principles, right? Like sometimes those principles and those lessons are there, 
in the action that's happening, but all they see is this progression of a play. So for example, important yeah. is that um, even when people are reading through plays, a lot of times they're not necessarily reading the plays for the principles that are there contained in the plays. And I think that that's a a potential pitfall because like if you're reading through Murazzo, for example, or um, through Manchilino, the principles that they're trying to convey are there in the plays themselves. And if you understand what those principles are, and if you understand what you should be focusing on, to try to pull out of what you're reading, then sometimes you can get why they might do the certain things that they do, right? Sure. So what are what are those principles that you're you're kind of focusing on? What are some of the key dynamics? Yeah, so there's a few different things. Uh, one of the Bolognese specific ones that I'm focusing on lately is, am I free to leave? Uh, so there's the idea of Gioco Largo and Gioco Stretto, right? The constrained and unconstrained play. Uh, and oftentimes we're presented these as here are the Larga plays and here are the Stretta plays without a ton of explanation of how to go from one to the other. Uh, so a question I was asking myself in my fighting recently was like, okay, I'm in this situation. Is my sword free to leave my opponent's silhouette? Yeah. And when I would do a pass and look back and got hit, it was generally, oh, I wasn't free to leave, and then I did. Yeah. Cool. I need to keep my point in this game when my opponent's point is hanging out over here. Uh, you know, there's a few other factors. But yeah. applying that, right, add to that, uh, you start to see uh, Missouri isn't so much a technical term in the Bolognese as it is in Rapier, uh, but you do see them using the phrase Missouri, right? Like, can this action reach, right? Did I throw this faint, as you were saying earlier, from out of measure? Well, they're either going to stand there and not care, or they're going to hit me while that's happening. Uh, Maybe I should understand measure a little better. Uh, Add to that, so I'd like to think, let's say, if we wanted to say there's four pillars, of Bolognese fencing. It's Gioco play, Missouri measure, uh, tempo, and mechanics slash line. Mm-hmm. Right. Dagoke gives us these like clear examples of tempo. Uh, if we go forwards in time, Gigante also gives us like a laundry list of like 12 different tempi. Uh, Capoferro does a nice breakdown where he has both uh, instances of tempi as well as categories. So he's like, oh, we have contra tempo and dewey tempi and primo tempo. And you're like, you're seeing some of these ideas fluttering around before then. Uh, he just like puts them all on one page, which is dandy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'm like, oh, okay, did I move out of time? Right. And some people will explain that as like, did I move off rhythm? I think a easier to grasp explanation is, was my action proportionally larger than my opponent's action yeah see you need to read you need to go back and read vigiani i think i think you'll appreciate vigiani (laughs) Uh, right but all these anonymous plays we're talking about like ah i shall open with this large move the response is use a smaller move yep Uh, there's you know there's a lot of things that go into who wins a fight uh 
size and strength and speed and technical skill are all factors. The first three though, are gonna cap out really fast. Like, so, like essentially like reach based on size, like is immutable. Like you're not gonna change it unless you like severely hurt yourself. You are this length, congrats. Uh, you can make your legs a little more flexible. That's really it. Strength yeah. you can affect, but we'll stop at a certain point. Speed, again, you can like kind of train your fast twitch muscles. A lot of that's going to be genetic. Also going to cap out. Yeah. Uh, I really like training people to have 50-year trajectories. Yeah. Like my teacher is 69 and it was going toe-to-toe -to -toe with me last time we fought. I want everyone to do that. Yeah. Right. Uh, I don't want you to burn out and get a gold medal by the age of 30 and then never be able to fight again. I want you to keep winning turn. You know, if you don't want to do tournaments, whatever. Like I want you to keep winning all the fights you want to fight in your 60s. So I think like physical conditioning is helpful for that, but understanding these principles, right? You know, there's always gonna be someone who's faster than you. And you can't really solve that problem. But I can make my action take less time yep. than yours. And I can whittle that down further and further to a much greater degree than I can move at a higher velocity. Yeah, I, I remember when I um when I first was preparing, I was preparing for my first tournament and uh I was fighting sword and buckler and this tournament was going to have sword. It was a uh, single sword and then sword and mixed weapons. Uh, and you'd basically, it was randomized what you would do. Right. And so we were doing preparation, um, just, it, just some sparring preparation for this tournament. And I, I got a chance to spar with um, Ben Strickling, who's our, our head instructor for our school. Um, and Ben's been doing this for a long time. Um, he's an amazing, amazing fencer. And um, I was fighting Ben with sword and buckler. And I, at the time I was, I mean, relatively, still relatively new. I think I was only within like my first year. And so like I, a lot of the things that I had in my head were just like these conventional things and very like set things. And I was thinking I just needed to go fast and I knew that he was fast. So I needed to go fast and like all these things, right. I had all, all, all these like tactical, terribly terribly conditioned tactical things in my head for how I was going to approach this. Um, and I remember like just trying to go through all these progressions, you know, I, I was able to hit everybody else, like get, get really solid actions in on, uh, on everybody else, like clean hits. And when it came to fighting him, it was like, he wasn't moving at all. And yet everything he did, set off everything that I did. It didn't matter how fast I was going. It didn't matter how hard I was going. It didn't matter what I did. Just his, the economy of motion, just doing these tight little things was just enough to set me off. And I was like, I, I just remember walking away from that fight and thinking to myself, wow, I've got a lot to learn. And that's what I need to get to because like that was unreal, right? Just like having him, you know, just, everything be so tight and that nothing that I could do could get through on him. Um, and I, I just remember that experience, but you know, you, 
I think it kind of highlights what you're talking about in terms of there is a, there's understanding and, and it's the principles, right? He's such an experienced fencer. It, it's his principles and it was his principles that allowed him to say, okay, if I can, you know, just slightly turn my sword into this line, I know that I've got this covered because this is where the cut's coming from. And from there, you're just doing all these basic actions, knowing when you have leverage, when you don't have leverage, using that to your advantage, all these wonderful ideas. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was definitely a, a great learning experience, but I think it, it, it speaks well to what you're talking about. Yeah, I think adding on to that, it, there are people who will focus a lot on their attributes and will find early success and then get frustrated really fast. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, they beat up all the other novices and now they're fighting like the big kid pool and they don't know why it's not working anymore. Uh, whereas if you take the other path, right, if you, it's gonna take longer uh, if you fight based off principles. But the great thing about fighting off principles is you can add your attributes in on top, right? I'm, especially like in my fencing practice, like I'm on the younger end. Uh, I probably work out more than most people at my practice. Most people I fight in tournaments. And like those things have allowed me to bail out of a lot of bad situations. I'm like, oh, okay, I didn't want to be in this guard. I'm going to leave now. We're going this way. Yeah. Uh, they, they kind of grease those skids and they help me uh, as well. Or, you know, I can go fight three tournaments in a day because I have done more cardio and have hurt my joints less. Uh, <laughs> but, right, I'm not generally winning a lot of my fights because, like, it's helping me out and it's giving me a little bit of an edge here and there. But I try not to walk into the foundation of, oh, I'm going to win by just going faster than this person. It's, I'm going to win by seizing their tempi and then, you know, using those attributes to add on top as opposed to lay the foundation. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that was really great, man. Um, but I know we've, we've kind of gone a little long. I think the, uh, the software here will cap out at two hours. So <laughs> okay, no worries. yeah, but, um, it's, it's been an, an absolute pleasure having you on here. Um, that was a great conversation. Um, I learned a lot and I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and, uh, and talking to me. Um, I really look forward to your blog posts about the Anonymo coming back, but I would also love to see some blog posts about your journey through Dalagoke and, and kind of some of the, you know, some of the insights that you can give um, from your experience, both with, uh, with the rapier, but also your experiences in, in tournament fighting and things like that. So um, I'd love to see that become more active because um, I, I would love to see your ideas get out there, man. It was, it was really great talking to you. No, same here. Awesome. Well, uh, you have a wonderful evening, sir. And uh, I will uh, hopefully see you again soon. One of these days, um, we'll run into each other. Yeah, yeah. If uh, if David ends up doing Lord Baltimore's challenge again, you should come out to the to the East Coast. And, uh, okay. and yeah, I have some relatives out that way I can probably crash with. Yeah, because I mean, it's a it's a cross SEA and, uh, and yeah. HEMA event. And it's a it's a good one. No, but, David's uh, a great guy. Uh, him and I ended up at a fencing conference in Wisconsin a while ago. And it's like, we're staying at the same building with a few other folks and I hung out a bunch. Nice. Yeah, cool. Well, all right, man. Well, I'll hopefully I'll see you around. And uh, it was great having you on. Sounds good. Thank you so much.
And that concludes another episode of Learte Darme, the Bolognese podcast. I want to thank Ark again for coming on and having a great conversation with me. Um, big changes are coming to Learte Darme. Um, I have decided to take on a co-host, and we are going to change the format a little bit um, just to change the overall structure so that way it's more palatable, easier to follow, um, and more interesting. You know, I've, um, for the longest time, I've kind of stuck with this uh, interview format, and that's all great and fine and dandy. But um, one of the things that I've always really wanted to do um, is actually delve into the history and of Bologna and, and the history of, of this time and the specific plays themselves to really kind of do breakdowns and talk about, you know, the intricacies of, of the plays themselves. And while that comes up from time to time in conversation, it's a lot harder to manifest in a, in sort of a natural conversation rather than something that's planned. Um, and, uh, conversational between two people who are kind of know what they're getting into rather than something that happens organically. So, um, with that, the next episode of Learte del Arme is going to, um, be very different and, um, I'm really excited about it. Uh, I will have, um, some more information coming out very shortly, um, about, uh, what's going to happen. Uh, the changes, what they're going to look like. Uh, my co-host is going to be Stephen Freitas. And uh, uh, we've already got an episode that we've been working on for the last, I don't know, about a month and a half now. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that we're getting into. That's the kind of research and amount of effort that we're putting into the podcast now. Um, you know, Episodes aren't going to come as quick as they used to, uh, especially when I was doing the interview format and I was working on like a weekly schedule. But the amount of content that's going to come from one of the podcasts that comes out is going to be a tremendous amount of work. I think that Stephen and I have already put in hundreds of hours uh, into the next episode um, doing a tremendous amount of research. So um, I hope everybody is excited about that. Um, and uh, look forward to, to getting it out there and, and, and letting everybody kind of check it out because hopefully it's going to be a great thing. So with that, I uh, want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of Layout to Del Arme. And as always, stay saucy, my friends.